Welcome back or welcome to the Single Track Podcast. I'm your host, Finn Melanson, and in this episode, we're talking with Baron Heinrich, a professor emeritus in the biology department at the University of Vermont, where he made major contributions in the study of the physiological, ecological, and behavioral adaptations of animals and plants to their physical environments. He's also regarded as one of the best American ultramarathoners of all time. In the early to mid-1980s, for example, he set records in the Road 100K, Road 100 Mile, and 24-hour track events. Later in life, he published two books that have received widespread acclaim in our community, one titled Why We Run, the other titled Racing the Clock. And these two books, as well as Barron's running career and lifestyle, serve as the basis of our conversation. Before we get started, though, this episode is brought to you by Rabbit, makers of my favorite trail running apparel. If you're in the market for new kit, head over to their website and use code SINGLETRACK20 at checkout for 20% off your next purchase. With that, let's get started. Bernd Heinrich, it's a pleasure to have you on the Single Track Podcast. And before we get started, I just wanted to thank you for the opportunity to enjoy this conversation in your beautiful mountain cabin in these northwestern Maine woods. I can't think of a place I'd rather be right now. This is incredibly peaceful. Well, thank you very much, Finn, for having me. Glad you're here. So I'll preface this in in the pre-roll of this episode as well. You are widely regarded as one of, if not the greatest American ultramarathoners, at least during that time period of the early to mid-80s. You had records at certain times in the 100K, 100-mile, 24-hour events, among other accolades. One thing I'm always curious about, especially with athletes of your stature, were you plugged into the scene from a social standpoint? Talk about that. Well, I don't think I was too much involved in the community. I I was interested in the running and uh, concentrating on that. And the main thing was for me is to do the best that I could. And that was about it. I did, really didn't know any people. I was totally by myself. I, I had no uh, knowledge. I knew, you know, I knew what this record was. And basically, I started out trying to see, you know, how fast I could run. And, and that, I, I wasn't any, any social thing at all. Is it true that you once got sponsored by Ocean Spray, which is a cranberry juice company back in the early 80s? Well, that's true. I was uh, right up here uh, training and uh, would run basically 20 miles a day, a big, big loop around the lake. And I'd get come back and I'd be really thirsty, you know, and I needed something sweet to drink. And anyway, so I just happened to like cranberry juice. So just for the hell of it, I said, well, you know, I'll probably use that in the race because I'm using it in on my training. So I must have written them and, and asked them, you know, if they would sponsor me. And they said, okay. And that, that was the only sponsorship I ever got, the only one I ever asked for, and they gave it to me. And they basically, what they did is they paid my airfare and, and uh, my hotel fare. That was Chicago 100, the championship run in Chicago. They had a representative there who was handing me the, the cranberry juice. So it was a six-mile loop, and, and every six mile I, I would chug few cups of or a cup or whatever of cranberry juice, whatever I wanted. And I know there was a, there was kind of a controversy because, uh, let's see, what was that now? I think there, there was a controversy about about the juice that 
No, never mind. <laughs> I don't know. There were some weeks, and you mentioned this in the book, where in preparing for that 24-hour race, for example, you were logging 200-plus mile weeks. That's wild. Yeah, I, I didn't know much about training at all. I had, I had no idea. But, you know, all I knew is that if I was going to run for 24 hours, I had to be able to, to run for 24 hours. So I had to, you know, had to do it and try it. Uh, so, you know, I, I would push the limit what I could do in, in training. But that definitely was not for 24 hours. It was still more like two or three hours. And then I realized that I just have to keep refueling. You have referred to yourself in various interviews and in these books as a guinea pig to some extent when it came to testing various fueling strategies. So uh, what do you recall from that era when it came to uh, experimenting with nutrition? I don't think I have any uh, wisdom to uh, impart there. I All I th thought was it's distance and I've got to run distance. And uh, one thing I did, I heard about was, was carbo-loading. So the thing was to, you know, to eat a lot the, the night before and, and, and in order to, to load, I would, you know, deplete first and, and then load. And I thought that would, you know, load up more. And anyway, I, I, I still think that calories on board is extremely important. And I think uh, I have experiments to prove that, that were inadvertent uh, that I found out that that's true. I mean, I just wanted to limit the possibilities, you know, uh, just to be sure. I, I didn't care, you know, how much I failed because I wanted to find out what's wrong so I can know what's right, you know. And I, and I found out different things that definitely did not work. So that, that kind of gave me more confidence in what might work. And, you know, and then there were, you know, experiments that were inadvertent. For example, I went to one 24-hour race down in Kentucky, uh, down south somewhere. And I, again, that was with cranberry juice. I said, well, I had good luck at, at the 100K in, in Chicago. So I brought a whole big jug of cranberry juice with me. And uh, I started the race and I started to get tired. And I made it, I think I made it to about 30 miles and then absolutely had to stop. I couldn't take another step. And I found out that the cranberry juice I was drinking didn't have sugar in it. And what I had before had, had corn syrup or something in it. And, and, and now, yeah, that was a controversy that the cranberry juice was diluted with sugar. And that was precisely why it was good for me, <laughs> because they had diluted it with corn syrup. After that, they took that out and they put in an artificial sweetener to fix it up. But that was the end of it for me. This episode is also brought to you by Kodiak Cakes, makers of my favorite pancakes. As a Costco disciple for many years, I've been reaching for a box of Kodiak Cakes in the hallowed halls of their supermarket for years now to fuel that post-Sunday long-run breakfast feast, and their sponsorship of the show is just wicked cool. I'm a huge fan of what they're doing, and if you're a fan of their products like I am or you're curious, head over to their website and use code SINGLETRACK15 at checkout for 15% off your next order. There's a couple questions that I want to ask you about the intersection between evolution and our early history as endurance hunters and obviously how all that relates to running as well. First question being, 
why should we care about this? Why should we honor this residual capacity from our hunter-gatherer times? What makes it relevant today? Yeah, well, I definitely, you know, I'm a comparative I'm a comparative biologist, so I look at, at uh, what different animals do, and when I compare us to, let's say, gorillas or chimpanzees, you know, we are, we are closely related. We are a hominid, you know. Everything about us points to uh, an animal that, that had, to, uh, had to run uh, and had to deal with heat. Uh, so we are obviously from the tropics. Uh, we are long, have long legs, and we have hair that shields us from the heat and the way we walk, uh, we reduce the direct input from the heat. So that means uh, if we are running, we are producing a lot of heat. So, uh, you know, as a comparative biologist, I thought we were built to run. Yeah. And, 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 but we don't do it. So I felt that the capacity was in there if we, if we uh, practice it. Part of the reason I ask is to consider the idea that evolution is maybe leading us in a different direction to focus on that you know nowadays perhaps we're evolving to optimize a different agenda a different set of use cases a different utility so in that light where would you draw the line on on what to keep and what to discard about our history you know you know i i don't think necessarily i mean i think uh, we we were also uh, extremely uh, aggressive, and I think we were fighting each other, and I don't think we should honor that. I think, you know, we were so successful that we would multiply and uh, become, you know, more like ants who fight each other because, you know, we are too many. And so I, I, I think we should recognize that and, and go against it instead. If we're aware of it, I think we, we, we're social, but we can get ourselves into situations that really are not best for for our interests, you know, like like wars. I I think that is kind of built in. Like chimpanzees, they fight each other too, you know. But I don't think it's good for them. I think you know to to know that that this can happen and and why uh, is to avoid it. All right. So in one of your books, I think it's why we run. You mentioned that the the steady improvement throughout the 20th century around running world records and growing excellence in certain parts of the world for certain running disciplines is not necessarily due to biological evolution. You suggest that it may be largely attributable to early and often exposure to a certain type of culture. And I found that fascinating. So go into that a bit more if you don't mind. Well, definitely, it's 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 hugely related to culture. I mean, if 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 it wasn't for the culture, you know, I wouldn't be have been running cross country on the cross country team, or people play football or tennis. That's all culture. So you know, culture is uh, is uh, is very important. Yeah, there's no biological advantage to playing tennis, but or, or football, but it has has byproducts. You know, for example, we, we are team animals. We like to team up w- with others. Uh, so th- there are some features in it that are innate, I think. But I think it can be expressed in different ways. All right. As a follow-up to that, and I think 
Yeah, I think this was also in Why We Run. You mentioned that the rate of improvement in these records won't sustain forever. And we're actually, if you look into it, we're already seeing the law of diminishing returns settle in. So I think what I'm wondering is how athletes will react when there's acknowledgement that the limits have not only been determined and proven, but they've also already been reached. What? How do you think that world looks? Well, I think they might just try different sports, you know, just a different expressions. I mean, you know, for example, I started at school, first of all, playing basketball, and, and I was very poor at it. So, you know, I wasn't going to set any records in basketball. So, so you know, because I wasn't tall enough, et cetera. So, so I just did something else. And, you know, same with track. You know, the guys that, that are not good runners, uh, let's say they, they do the shot put. Or, or the hammer or the discus, you know, they just try something else. And so after the records, if I, the only reason I, I tried that hard was because I knew what the record was and I knew I had a chance to do it. If, if I didn't think I had a chance, I wouldn't do it. And if everybody does that, you know, nobody's going to do it and they're going to do something else. They're going to run across the Gobi Desert or whatever, you know, or something like that, or run across the country or there is an obvious challenge that that if you uh, accomplish it, you achieve something. Still, there there will be always a, a sense of, you know, what is a great run? You know, what is a good time? It might not be the record, but it, I, for example, in uh, at, at University of California in Berkeley, uh, was with a bunch of guys, and we were running on the track every at noontime there close by to go down to the track and we were doing sprint work i mean you know like like short distance and i remember you know my goal was to see if i could break the two minute half mile that was no record at all but i was extremely happy and i felt successful when i finally broke it so uh, it, it was a record for me and it was a it, it was an achievement it was no way, you know, like national record or anything like that. But but still, you know, I still had that goal. So you don't think an athlete would abandon an event like, for example, the track 10K once everything has been accomplished in that discipline, especially if there's somebody at the top end of the sport? No, I don't think so. You know, if you run it in 28, yeah, you're doing pretty good. I was, uh, you know, running the, the 10K. And, and I don't even remember really uh, what times I was aiming for, but it was something that I thought I might possibly get and, and probably wouldn't. But it was nevertheless, I could feel, you know, what, what would be a challenge. One of the major themes in a lot of your books is sensitivity to the rate of aging in ourselves and whether or not it's productive to be curious about it as athletes and whether there's more to discover. What can you say about that thread line in your own personal experience? Because, you know, in one of your books, for example, I think it's Racing the Clock, you really emphasize that idea of pivoting from being a competitor amongst your peers to really shifting your focus to, uh, I don't want to say cheating the biological clock, but... uh, perhaps racing that instead and, and seeing what you can do 
with your remaining time? I have no idea. I, I, you know, I haven't kept up with the research, but I always figure their individual differences and whatever the average that they find out uh, that might not apply to me, you know. I'm not confident that we can really know exactly what we can do and what we can't do. <clears throat> you know, I'm still running once in a while. And, uh, you know, I think about it and I kind of tending to think that, you know, small stresses <clears throat> activate the body to do something about it. So if, if you're just sitting still, the body doesn't think it has to do anything. But if, if you stress it, then it has to do something about it. And I think, you know, we, we need to have a good circulatory system. We need to have a heart beat. And if, if it's not going to be stressed, it's not going to get stronger. At least for me, I, I, I'm going to keep running, but, but I'm not going to be doing any 20 miles a day or anything like that. I mean, right now I'm doing, you know, like I've been doing a couple of miles every couple of days or something. And, and that's good enough for me. And uh, I do it because I, I want to have the body say, okay, I've got to do something to, to keep this going. But it's difficult to find out. I think there are individual differences, and I have not kept up with the research. But, you know, I think I'm, I'm a pretty good example. I feel I'm, I'm pretty strong, uh, and I've run all my life, so I haven't run myself down. I'm, you know, 83 years old, and I just ran a 10K and, you know, and did pretty well. I was in half in the pack, yeah, yeah, a week ago or so, yeah. Uh, actually, it was a race that they had here in Weld called the Raven Run, and I was kind of featured in it, so I had to run it. It was about an hour. It wasn't quite a 10K. It was, it was a, a loop, and it was, I think... 5.8 miles. I mean, uh, you know, my goals are going to be what I think is possible for myself. So that creates minimums that I want to exceed and, and maximums that I'm never going to get. So I don't want to be totally disappointed all the time. So I have to have something that I can do. There's a quote in Wabi Run that I want to discuss here. You say, the key to endurance as runners all know, is not just a matter of sweat glands. It's vision. To endure is to have a clear goal and the ability to extrapolate to it with the mind, the ability to keep in mind what is not before the eye. Vision allows us to reach into the future, whether it's to kill an antelope or to achieve a record time in a race, end quote. Talk here about why we're psychologically evolved to be curious and to dream and to pursue these long-term goals. I find this fascinating. Well, I mean, <clears throat> I kind of think of it in terms of adaptation to environment. And I think we were basically carnivores, meat eaters on the plains in Africa evolved. And, you know, we went on to eradicate animals all over the place uh, when we came north uh, with the mastodons and whatnot, but we were hunters and communal, so that was part of our nature that was selected for that would promote that and running and and having 
dreams to pursue. And, you know, the, the Bushmen, you know, they, they still run down antelope and they have to uh, keep that vision in mind when the rewards are, you know, far into the distance. There is a, of course, there is a utility. Yeah, yeah. If you didn't have it, you wouldn't keep going. I mean, you know, look at all the the, the native hunters. Uh, they They will... After they don't see it, then they will look for track, sign, you know. But they have to know, you know, what their prey is, what they're going to do to keep it in mind so that they keep the focus on it. And, uh, you know, it might take them, might them days, you know, they if the prey is too big, you know, they shoot it with poison and they have to chase it for a couple of days before it drops. And so if you don't have that dream of reaching that goal, you're never going to do it. There's another quote here. You say, to psych oneself up takes self-delusion. That's where the use of logic comes in. Logic is less an instrument for finding truth than a tool that we use to help us justify what our lower emotional centers direct or demand of us. And lacking this self-delusionary logic, we would be less able to rationalize and so unable to succumb to such a mad, senseless, crazy thing as trying to see how fast we can run 62.6 miles without stopping, end quote. And I want to hear you elaborate on this because I think there are some people out there, maybe a lot of people out there, who would not assume that logic is being driven by emotions. They might alternatively assume that it's this force that's independent of emotion or it's this sort of watch person or police person on emotion. So talk about that distinction. I found that very interesting in the book. Well, the the logic is to achieve some goal because if you didn't have the logic, then you have no way to get there. So the logic is you want that and then you have to find a way, a way to do it. And, you know, you know, if you're running for a record, that means you have to do the training and, and the diet and so on. So that's, that's all logic. And also the, the why is, is logic and, and the way is logic, both. So I think logic is, is very important. But it might not be logical to somebody else who, who is not interested in that particular goal. So it has to be, you know, goal-specific. All right, there's one more quote that I want to read to you so that we can discuss. You say, we rely on what we think we know, and therefore we can go no farther. And then it hit me why most of us have a specific age when we are most productive and creative, and also when we run and why. End quote. And the reason I bring this up is because in a lot of these books, in Racing the Clock and in Why We Run, there appears to be this tension between uh, the importance of dreaming and believing that we can become more than we think we're capable of, but at the exact same time asserting that there needs to be realism involved, that we need to be realistic about what's possible. So yeah, this is something I've I've wanted to ask you. How do you reconcile those two notions about how to operate in life? Well, I don't I don't know, you know, what the problem is. You 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 can't try to do something that's impossible. It it has to be possible. And if it's difficult, 
then it has it requires more attention it, it requires more depth to penetrate and to accomplish physically as well mentally and physically but the body can only do you know what what the mind tells it to do i mean you know trying for that 100 kilometer record i knew it was at the edge and i couldn't guarantee it but i knew if if i got it it might be for all i knew it might be 5 seconds you know it it, it it's a big chance and it has to be big enough to make it worthwhile to uh take that risk yeah. so it, it you know 9 out of 10 it might fail but it's so big that this one chance i'm going to you know then it's big enough Thank you to HVMN for also supporting this episode. I've been using their Ketone IQ product for the last nine months during long runs as well as right after those big efforts. And I find that during long runs, taking a shot of their Ketone IQ product maintains my mental clarity and focus. And when I take that shot post-run, especially in the midst of consecutive big weeks of training, I find that it helps me absorb that training load and ultimately expedites recovery. So if you're interested in giving it a try yourself, head over to hvmn.com forward slash single track 20. And if you use that link, you'll save not 20, but 30% off your first subscription. So uh, check that out. Also, our old code single track 20 still works if you're just looking to make a one-time purchase and you're a new user. So with that, let's get back to the conversation. This topic comes up towards the end of Racing the Clock. It might actually be in the last chapter of Racing the Clock where you're observing everything that's going on in society, all of the problems we have, all of the breakthroughs that we're having from a positive standpoint, where people are at individually and at scale from a existential standpoint, wanted to be a part of something greater. And because of that combination of the problems we're facing and the successes we're having, you propose the idea of a new religion. You call it the church of nature. And you believe that uh, the time might be ripe for it. So talk about why this could be a viable substitute for common religions and why trail running could be this not just a sequel to former eras of running, but uh, why it could potentially take center stage in society. You know, nature, call it God, you know, that is the, the universe. And, and I think we have to be in line with it and not against it. We are, you know, destroying nature at a massive scale. And I don't think we will do anything different unless we kind of worship it. Otherwise, we just use it as a resource. And and if we just use it as a resource, we can just demolish it. And, and then uh, we're only looking at the present. So I think in religion, I think of something universal that's uh, it's not really time-bound. It's kind of there f- you know, f- forever. And, and that's what I think of nature, and we should treat it that way, that, that we want to maintain it. And, and I feel it's something that everyone can agree on because we've got the evidence. We've got 
it's all uh, it's not something that's just an imagination it's in knowledge and, and, it, and the, you get the knowledge from contact and 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 so I think like trail running and mountain running and stuff it's a way of getting close to nature and uh, it's not the only way but it's one of the ways and it's at least you're out there you know it's there and uh, you know, when I was running some of these races, you know, I was actually looking for caterpillars along the way. And, and it was just, uh, you know, I was thinking more could be, it's not just running around the track, you know, it's, uh, it's dealing w- with the real world, so to speak. What would, um, what would worship look like in this religion? Well, I think it would come from seeing the, uh, the unknown and the intricacy and and the uh, and the beauty, you know, seeing the beauty starts from looking at a distance and seeing the mountains, seeing the trees, seeing the leaves, seeing the uh, the birds, and seeing what the birds do, et cetera, et cetera. It gets finer and finer detail until you get down to the molecules. You know, it it has to start from looking at uh, what what is right in front of you. And, and I think you know, I started living in the woods we lived in the woods and that's why i they call me nature boy because i was always out there i was imprinted on it and you know i was friends with a crow that i had for a pet and so that's a way of of getting to to know uh birds uh and then i wanted other animals you know a turtle or insects or whatever and and so i'm still at it and i see new things all the time just by going outside you know, I've got a spider there on the door, and uh, I'm watching that. Um, had a raccoon that I was feeding out of my hand. Uh, you know, I'm learning so much about this animal. Uh, and every time I go out, I see something totally different that I never expected. So the thing is, it's 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 boundless in all directions. And it starts with just being out there, being outside the door. And do you see trail racing, these trail races serving as the de facto gathering place for this type of religion? Yeah, I, I think so. I think the people, you know, th- they like to be out in the woods and, and, the, tra- and the trails and, uh, uh, and seeing uh, what's out there. Uh, you know, a friend of mine, he goes up in the mountains, you know, every weekend he runs some mountain. But, you know, I, I do it right here. I go down to the brook or something like that. So it's not the connection to, to, to running is only tenuous in the sense that we are runners in, in nature and that was our profession as, as animals to be knowledgeable of other animals and, and plants and the environment and, and the weather and everything like that. We were in nature that was our home. So, you know, a- anything that, that gets us there closer is being closer to God than being in a church. I don't know the answer to this. I guess I'm actually curious now, and uh, in a post-conversation I'll take a look. But offhand, do you have a sense of the history of nature-based religions? Well, I mean, likely at Stonehenge, they they worship the sun and the moon and the seasons. acutely aware you know when the sun's going to come up and what the seasons are and when the caribou are coming through in the season and when when the nuts are coming from the trees you know that's all interrelated 
and you look at the Indian tribes, you know, they, they always uh, uh, see uh, if they were close, you know, hunters or gatherers, they, they, they all worship nature. How do you anticipate society fundamentally changing if we see widespread adoption for this? Yeah. Well, they would be more aware of potential problems and, and, and be more alert to to injuries. You know, I think we're starting now. I mean, we, we have, we're thinking about global warming. We, we're thinking about the whole earth as, a, as an organism. And when you think of it that way, you uh, realize that that some things are harmful and you can do something to uh, uh, mitigate and promote other things. So we're recording this in early August 2023, and I'm curious, what does your day-to-day life look like right now? Well, on that little path going down there, for example, there is a little hole and and there's some animal is is living underground and i noticed even after i drove up and down with the truck there with my load there's still a hole something is coming up and i was wondering what the hell is down there and what is it like for that animal to live underground and you know i was looking at you know how fast uh, these trees are growing and and i keep thinking uh, you know, like those trees right there, uh, I planted the parents of that tree down there uh, with uh, American chestnuts. And I planted them, I bought them from a catalog from northern Michigan where there was a blight resistant several trees and I planted them. And, and now I have uh, American chestnuts growing all through the woods here. And I'm thinking of how little things can have a huge effect. And uh, so I look at all kinds of little things, and I'm seeing more and more that changes that I hadn't seen before. I mean, I'm I'm just amazed. I'm looking at that at that web of the spider, and it's so incredible precision of all the little hundreds of threads exactly spaced apart. And I says, how in the hell does he me- measure that and get them just right? So I'm just you know a guard all the time about little things that once I start looking at them, I, I see more and more, even now after all of these years, that I'm still seeing uh, them. And uh, so so that makes me, you know, like a little bit hesitant to, I couldn't imagine living in a city, you know. I had a car accident and had to live in, in, in a town for a while. And I thought I'd have to live there. I couldn't live up here anymore. Uh, but, uh, you know, after a few months, I just had to get, get out of there and come back up here. So I, d- I don't know what I'm saying. but And then, you know, I take notes. And so for seasons in the northern forest, I am looking how it changes over the time, over time. And I, I have to be... So here I have a specific reason also to, to you know, to be... Uh, alert to, to what's, what's happening so that I'll have something to write about. But that reason now is given me more than I thought it was going to be because it's, I feel forced to do that, but it's, it's, it's turning out to be extremely interesting and, and I'm going to much 
more detailed than I ever would have by myself. The same with the running. You know, I was interested in running, but then when I was going to race that race, then I had to do a lot more running, and then I got a lot more out of it. So I had to have a reason to, 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 to do things. The logic. The logic, yeah. What's the story behind those shoes there, those Nikes hanging on the wall? Oh, take them. Take a look at them. Nike Mariah. Those are the, sh the shoes that I wore for all of my big races. Just wow. Pick it up. Yeah. Uh, wear the same pair of shoes. So it says on here, 1983 Brunswick, Maine, 24-hour run, 156 miles, 1,388 yards, USA record. The runs of these shoes are in high demand. Wow. Yeah, I... I got to take a picture of these before. Yeah, I never... Somebody else might have gone to Nike and said, you know, after the first record and say, okay, I'll, I'll sponsor your shoes. You give me a, you know, da, da, da. Yeah. But no, I, I never got a penny for, for running, not a penny. In retrospect, you have had a tremendous amount of respect, both in your academic career as a professor and a researcher and as an athlete in this ultra running world you've sort of been this paragon for individualism too. We're recording in this cabin that you live in remotely here in the Northwestern Maine woods. And it's all really impressive. And I think, you know, part of the, or a few of the values that come to mind for me are things like commitment and perseverance and focus and dedication and, you know, stuff like that. And it's all admirable, but I ha you know, in any lifestyle, there are trade-offs. And are there any elements of life that you otherwise appreciate that fell by the wayside in that process? Like, what immediately comes to mind there? Satisfaction, satisfaction, you know, yeah. What do you mean by that when you say satisfaction? Well, um, I don't know. Seeing something beautiful, I guess. Yeah. I, I didn't think about it, you know. I, I was always interested, you know, and that's that's it. And and, and glad to uh to see uh it created, I guess. So do you mean in research or in training you weren't savoring the experience, so to speak? You know, if I was running a twenty mile, I wasn't exactly savoring it. No. I was I like the completion. I like the end end game. I mean, I you know, I I paint too, and I I have the first part of it. You know, it doesn't look like anything, but it gets better and better the more you put into it, and and the more pleasure you get out of it. And the pleasure is pretty much in relation to how much you know is put into it. Did you care about balance in the prime of your life, or were you more intent on being monomaniacally focused in all of your endeavors? Well, I, I mean, I never thought about being great. You know, I never planned to be a great runner. I just had this goal and I'm going to go there and I can do that and that's it. And then I see something else and I do that. You know, I see, you know, that spider and, and I'm studying the spider and, and I'm looking forward to what I write about it because 
when I write about it, I have to look at all the details and see how they all fit together. And I don't see them until I have, I'm done with it. I'm looking forward to, to that point where I, I, have, I have that spider know what, what's happening. And I look forward with the running when I can do the race and, and I do uh, and, and I do well on it. I mean, I just ran this this 5.8 mile there on Weld in, in Weld here. And actually the town put it on. You know, th this was pretty amazing, the, the, the Raven Run. And uh, I feel good inside for, for having done it. So I'm getting the pleasure all the time now. You know, I... I feel glad I, I did it and and other people are glad I did it and so it's satisfaction from, from from getting off my butt and doing something so I know you're spending a lot of time writing at the moment you've got this book planned to be released I believe in the next year or two is there anything else that you're hoping to get done in the next few years actually this book is actually only a step what I wanted to do was write a book about the beauty of nature. That was my plan. I, beauty of nature, I like to mostly from my, my drawing, my watercolors, because you know each picture, each, each watercolor has a story behind it uh, that relates to the biology of it. But they said, well, you know, that's going to cost a lot of money to produce, you know, and so you have to do another book first that will justify us, you know, investing in that. So that's what I'm doing right now. So I see myself, but anyway, it turned out to be great because anyway, the first, what I sent them, they didn't like and they rejected it. So, and, and I understand, but now that I look at, because seasons, I says, why should I write about that? I wrote the winter world and I wrote the summer world. How can I write a book about seasons? Uh, so I was very, a little bit confused about how that was going to go. But now I'm actually keeping track of the seasons, what happens every day. I, I take notes almost every day about something, you know, and I try to keep track of it all. And it's so, so my mind is filled with everything that's going on. So I, I'm seeing things and, and getting a lot of pleasure out of it that I didn't even know was there. Just one last question before we go. What thought or piece of advice would you like to leave listeners with? I think it is, you know, about the beauty of nature, you know, how, you know, how, how amazing the world is and, and how much we, for the most part, are unaware about it. And the closer we look, the more we see. And, and I just feel, I think, you know, I, I feel lucky to be alive. And, and if, if I wasn't doing that, I feel like I'd, I'd be wasting something. You know, I think about you know, all the people that got killed and, 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 and they didn't have that. And, and so if I'm alive and, and, and I don't take advantage of it, then, then I'm just wasting it. You know? So I want to be productive and take advantage of it. Hey, before we go, I have two favors to ask. One, if you are a regular listener and haven't done so already, please hit the subscribe button in Apple and Spotify. It's the number one thing you can do right now to help grow the show and keep the lights on here. Additionally, if you haven't done so already, 
please leave a rating and or review in Apple and Spotify. It takes about two seconds, but it has a similar impact in terms of helping us reach new audiences and grow the show. So that's all for now. Thanks so much for your help. Thanks for listening. And we will catch you soon. It's almost UTMB time. And we have a great lineup of content coming your way to hype it all up. Talk soon.